Well, um, I know that uh, Paul and the elders here want you all to proclaim the, the gospel about Jesus. And they want you to be part of and to support new efforts in planting gospel churches. Proclaim the gospel, plant churches. Uh, that's very familiar. Christians do that all over the world. And uh, I imagine everybody here this morning would nod and say, yeah, very good, very good, very good. But I imagine that in your heart of hearts, um, you think to yourself, well, that's your job. You're the minister here. You're supposed to tell me to proclaim the gospel and plant churches. Of course, that's what you do. That's what you get paid to do. So I've got no intention of doing any of that thing. It's just what you tell me to do on a Sunday morning. Proclaim the gospel, plant churches... Yes, Minister, very good. Uh, But in our heart of hearts, we're thinking, uh, you have no idea how busy I am at the moment, how many stresses I face in the family and at work. Um, There are a lot of other people, I'm sure they can take it up, but frankly, at the moment, I'm too busy doing other stuff. Just arrived in Edinburgh. Uh, I'm, you know, proclaim the gospel, plant churches. Yes, yes, but not yet. Thanks very much. Because the truth is that none of us will actually bother to proclaim the gospel to our friends and colleagues. None of us will be willing to be part of or to pay for the planting of a new church if we're not convinced of the reasons for it. Uh, I mean, the professional staff, they can get on with doing that stuff. That's their job. But the rest of us are not going to be involved unless we've got some pretty good motivations for doing it. And so I want to show you this morning, from the New Testament, some motives for mission. Some reasons, not just for the staff, but for all of us, to bother to proclaim the gospel to our colleagues, friends, neighbours, family, and to be part of planting churches in this great city. You see, here in this passage that was read to us uh, from 2 Corinthians uh, 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul talks about wanting to please Jesus. Verse 9, so we make it our goal to please him. Now my guess would be that if you're anything like uh, the people of London, um, that is often not our goal. Often our goal is to please our friends our colleagues, our neighbours, our family. Uh, my wife and I had the joy uh, a couple of years ago now actually going to Marrakesh in Morocco. And in Marrakesh there are lots of these amazing markets or souks where they sell incredible things. And we came across one market that was totally dedicated to selling um, uh, lizards, chameleons. And you know what chameleons are. Chameleons are an amazing species of lizard who adapt their appearance to camouflage themselves, to fit in with their surroundings, to escape predators. And it struck me that many Christians suffer from something called the chameleon syndrome. Uh, That is, we, we are in the habit of camouflaging ourselves so that we look like anybody else. We want to fit in, to belong at work Uh, with our neighbours, with our family. And so we change our appearance. So we come to church on a a Sunday. It's la, 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 loved you, Jesus, all that stuff. And then you go home, and frankly, the rest of the week, we're no different from anybody else. 
And nobody has any idea that we're a Christian or why we are one. Because we're suffering from a chameleon syndrome where we just fit in, we're just trying to please everyone else. And we wouldn't really want to seem odd or different because we're afflicted with this need to please everybody else. And the Apostle Paul says here that when you realize that your home is not here on this earth, that when you come to Jesus, you have this wonderful home that you're looking forward to being, being in, with God in heaven, with all his family, from every culture and nation on the earth. When you realize that he is our loving heavenly father who's taking us home to be with him, that you want to please him more than you want to please everybody else, And so here in this chapter we read of what that means for your motivations in life and why you do things and why you might want to actually proclaim Jesus and plant churches. Let me explain. This passage comes in a section of 2 Corinthians, which is a letter written to some Christians in Rome in the first century. Sorry, not in Rome, in Corinth in the first century. Uh, From chapters 2 through to 7, the apostle is explaining, in fact defending, uh, his unimpressive but spiritually very powerful ministry of teaching about Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Uh, He's doing that because some super apostles have arrived in town who look incredibly impressive and incredibly popular, but they don't preach Jesus and him crucified. And the whole section begins in chapter 2, verse 17, where he says rather pointedly, unlike so many, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. We're not in this for what we can get out of people. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, that is, with honesty. And here in this passage, he he outlines what that means in terms of motives for mission. What does it mean to be honest? And what we find is that, firstly, out of fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, out of the gratitude for the love of God, out of a sense of responsibility for the message that's been entrusted to us, and a sense of opportunity of the times we're living in. He acts with sincerity, proclaiming the gospel and planting churches that everyone might hear about Jesus. So all I want to do with you is just go through and pick out those four motives as he explains them here in this passage. And the first comes in the fear of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. Let me read it to you again. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. The fear of Christ. In these verses, the apostle is quite clear, isn't he, that we shall all one day be raised to life. So we'll all have died, our bodies rotting somewhere, dismembered or whatever, but we shall all be reconstructed raised to life to face God and be judged. Our lives will be assessed. Indeed, this is part of the gospel. If you look in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, or in Revelation 14, the judgment day, the judgment of all mankind is part of the gospel. So um, if that's not part of your message, or if that's not part of the evening course you go to, you're not hearing the whole gospel. Because Romans 2, Revelation 14 are quite clear that that judgment day is part of the gospel. That's why Christ had to die on a cross for us. 
So he says this judgment is part of the gospel. Now that motivates us to think carefully about the future. Many of you who are students will face terrifying exams at some point in Edinburgh. Uh, Many of you at work will face an appraisal at which uh, whether you're made redundant or not will be decided. Uh, Perhaps some of you will face a driving test or any kind of examination. All of us face different kinds of examination at one point uh, or another. But none of them is anywhere near as stressful as this examination on Judgment Day, which will determine whether and how we spend eternity. It's not just just whether we have a job for a few years. It's not just about whether we get a degree or not. This is about where we spend eternity, which is a very long time. So that is a fairly stressful thing to think about, isn't it? And that's why the Apostle says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Now, for those of us who are believers in Jesus, there's no fear of punishment or condemnation anymore. All that was taken by Christ on the cross, and what a relief. So it's not a fear of of punishment or condemnation. But Paul is quite plain here that he and all the other Christians, we will be examined because our lives still matter to God. God cares about us. And Jesus made clear in his teaching that he loves to reward his people. He told stories, uh, the parables of the talents, in which he talks about how God gives us opportunities and resources in life to use for him, and there'll be a day when he assesses what we've done with the life and the resources that he gave to us. And he wants to reward us. It's very striking, the two times that we read of Jesus telling this parable, he tells the parable slightly differently. One parable... All believers with our different lives and different resources are rewarded with the same reward, that is living with God in heaven forever. Fantastic. But in the other parable, he talks about the fact that uh, people do different things with their lives and we will be differently rewarded. That is to say that those who have laid down their lives sacrificially for Jesus will be greatly rewarded even more than those of us who haven't. And all that means it's not how you get into heaven. You get into heaven through Jesus. It's just that now you're safe and on your way to heaven. Jesus wants to reward us for what we've done with our lives. He's giving us this life to show him how much we love him. And so he will assess what we've done. Now how do you think of that day? When you face Jesus. Uh, Perhaps you think of that day like a great stadium. You know, the Bernabeu football stadium magnified you know, a million times or whatever. Massive great crowd of people all gathered in the presence. And Jesus reading down the list. It's taking a long time, but you've got forever. And he's reading down the list and he's working through the, you know, the names and he gets to the max. And there's lots of them here today, I imagine. And then he comes to your name. Is there a Reese here? Paul, Reese, come down please. Reese, Reese. Anyone else seen a Reese anywhere around here? Is that, is that Paul? Paul? Yeah, Paul. Paul Reese, it's your turn. Paul Reese comes down and he walks down. And there he is, front up, in front of Jesus, collapses on his, on his face before Jesus. And Jesus declares his assessment of Paul's life. Now imagine it's your name. Anyone by that name here? You come down to the front. And now you see Jesus face to face. You fall flat on your face. And you feel his hands upon your elbows lifting you up. And then he'll say, 
He will declare his assessment of your life. And when he says, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant, thank you. Thank you for what you did for me. And when you see the scars on his hands and the smile on his face, you will forever remember the way he says those words to you. When he says, I know how hard it was for you. I know that it was difficult for you because of those circumstances. Thank you, my friend. You will remember that for the whole of eternity. Your, your chest will fill up with pleasure as you see the smile on his face to you. And that's what life is about. It's about preparing for that moment and the eternity that follows it. With those words ringing in your ears. Everybody's heard them. And the apostle says, that's what I'm living for. I'm living for that moment when I shall face Jesus on judgment day. But of course, if, it's, if that's stressful for us as believers, how much more for unbelievers? Uh, we know, if we're Christians now, how terrifying the supreme being is. You know, for whom the trillions of galaxies are just a spoken into existence. However he did that scientifically, it's just a few words from him. And so for unbelievers, Jesus spoke of the horrors of fronting up to God unforgiven. What are you doing here, unforgiven? Jesus likened the declaration that he will make upon those who have not turned to him, who all their lives have put out their hands to Jesus and said, push off, leave me alone, I don't want you running my life, I want to run my own life, my own way. Jesus said, if you do that with your whole life, then don't expect to be in heaven with me. The trouble is that because we live in God's world where God is so kind to us, none of us have ever lived in a world without God's kindness. And we think that being without God will be as good as this. No, it won't. Jesus said, please don't be mistaken about this. Being outside of the presence of God, which of course he called hell, he likened to living in flames. He said it's horrific to live with nothing from God. If you've spent your whole life saying, push off, don't want you, do you know what you're asking for? To live forever without anything from God? See, it's not that God is some kind of torturer who like comes sort of lights up the furnace. It's that God is holy. The flames speak of God's holiness. And if you front up before God unforgiven, then you'll live forever in the holiness of God. And Jesus said, that's like trying to live in a living flame for eternity. It's horrific. Could any of you, as it were, I don't know where you live, wherever you live, imagine walking home uh, tonight, perhaps, you know, had a nice day. And as you're walking home in the evening to where you live, you can see there's a family house there and the children of the family have clearly gone to bed but downstairs you can see that, I don't know, cigarettes fall on the carpet or something and the flames are engulfing the furniture and the curtains downstairs. And you, clearly the family must be all upstairs asleep but this whole house is going up in flames. Is there anyone here who would simply walk past and go home? 
You wouldn't be bothered to ring the fire brigade. You wouldn't be bothered to knock on the door and yell at everybody, get out. You're about to be engulfed by flames. You need to get out. Is there anybody here so heartless as to do such a thing? Well, the answer is, yeah, there are lots of us who walk past people who don't know Jesus and we say nothing. So says the apostle, you see, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. We know what awaits those who are unforgiven, and so we try to persuade people. Persuasion is what we do. We don't manipulate people. Manipulation is, is to get people to do things, but they don't know why. Persuasion is to explain the truth to people so they do know why. And they come to Christ because they want to, because they've been persuaded with the reasons for the hope that we have. And that's what the apostle did. You read in Acts 17, 18, 19, constantly persuading, persuading, persuading. And so we need to persuade people. And one of the best reasons for people, I mean the best reason is because God is so wonderful. And Jesus is so marvelous. And everything about life is improved by knowing him. But there is another reason. If you don't turn to Jesus, you face the consequences of living your whole life. The way we treat God and the way we treat other people will face justice. And Jesus says, don't do it. Now you might be sitting there thinking, you're trying to scare us to become Christians. Yes, I suppose I am. It's still true. The great Welsh preacher, um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who was used of God to bring many people to know Jesus some years ago now, wrote this. I am not afraid of being charged with trying to frighten you, for I am definitely trying to do so. If the love of God in Christ Jesus is not enough to attract you, then I value your soul enough to alarm you with the sight of the terrors of hell. Eternal remorse, eternal misery, eternal wretchedness, unchangeable torment such is the lot of all who never embrace Christ with a whole heart such is the value you see that we place upon your soul that if you won't come to God because he's so lovely then at least come to him to avoid hell because if you spend your whole life saying push off God that is where you're choosing to go so the first motivation to proclaim Jesus and to plant churches is the fear of Christ, for his judgment is coming. Secondly, the second motivation, the love of Christ. Chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. This is more pleasant to think upon. Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced, we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again, the love of Christ. Uh, I mean, one of the great joys of being a preacher is that I can stand here this morning and tell you something that you may not know. And I don't know whether lots of people tell you this, or actually, in truth, nobody's told you this for a very long time. But let me tell you on the authority of God, that God loves you. God absolutely loves you to bits. He loves you 
so much that he sacrificed his only son to make it possible for you to be with him forever. He only had one son and he gave him up to make it possible. That is how much he loves you. And the Apostle Paul says, when I think about that, I'm overwhelmed by it. He says, I'm driven by it. He says, I'm compelled by it. For Christ's love compels us. We're compelled to tell people about Jesus. Because it's so wonderful that he loves us so passionately. Now, it may be that you and I are sitting there, well, okay, um, sometimes just for brief moments I feel the love of God. But I don't always feel driven by the love of Jesus. I haven't felt driven by the love of Jesus enough to tell anybody else about him or to be involved in a sacrificial church plant. So where does this compulsion come from? Where do you get this sense of overwhelming gratitude for the love of Jesus? Where does that come from in the apostle? He tells us here. Twin convictions about the cross of Christ. Do you see what he says? Verse 14. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. This is what we need to understand, and if we don't feel overwhelmed by the love of Jesus, this is what we need to go back to and explore a little more fully. The writings of John Piper are very helpful on this sort of thing. Firstly, that one died for all, technically called penal substitution. All it means is, penal means punishment, substitution means taking our place. So it just means that Jesus swapped places with us on the cross. See, why did the supreme being take flesh? Why on earth did he shrink himself down to become an ordinary bloke like us walking around in the, in the first century? seems so bizarre. For a Muslim, it seems blasphemous. Why would God shrink himself down to become an ordinary man? The answer is so that he could swap places with ordinary people like you and me when he died on that cross. So that there on the cross, in the first century, in public, in history, he could take upon himself all the sufferings that we deserve in hell because he loves us. Let me try and uh, illustrate that. Uh, There's a World Cup going on, rugby. I don't know whether you follow it. Uh, Richie Gray, Scottish second row. What is he, eight foot four or something? He's a giant man. Fantastic prospect as a player. Imagine Scotland thrash England 50 nil. Is that, is that good? And then you, you progress through, you're in the final, playing the All Blacks, uh, who've got uh, collars around their necks. No, um, you're, you're playing the All Blacks, Scotland versus uh, New Zealand, and you're playing second row. And you're not doing very well. It's embarrassing. In fact, it's dreadful. Uh, you're clearly going to letting the side down badly. And after about 20 minutes... Uh, Andy Robinson thinking, this is absolute disaster. And you know you're a disaster too. This is just dreadful. You're four foot two. These guys are all enormous great giants. You're losing the World Cup for Scotland. So what do you do? Oh, Richie Gray comes, is coming on. As what happens is, Richie Gray comes on, you go off. He takes your place on the field. Okay? He takes your place. That is a substitute. And that is what happened on the cross. We've been making a mess of our lives. We're in serious trouble with God. So God took flesh in Jesus to swap places with us, to come on on our behalf, to live the life we haven't lived and take the death that we deserve for us as our substitute. More than that, what that means is, you see, not only does he then suffer in our place on the cross as our substitute, that means that when he died, we all died for our sins. And this is called technically federal representation. It just means that as our king, Jesus, 
when he died, we all died for our sins as well because he represented us. Uh, let me explain. Imagine it's um, two minutes to go, Scotland are three points down, and then Richie Gray goes crashing over the line, places the ball, wins the match. It's not just Gray who, who, who jumps up saying, I've scored, is it? The whole Scotland team, half the stadium, and Scots all around the world jump to their feet and scream, We've scored! We've scored! We've won! Now, the truth is, there's only one man holding the rugby ball, okay? but millions of people stand up saying, we've scored. You see, the apostle is saying that when Jesus died, we all died. We've died for our sins. Our sins have been punished in him. What happened to him counts for the rest of us. And when you think about that, knowing that he's now risen again to the right hand of God means we're acceptable to God in him. He's good enough. It's all over. We've won because Jesus died on the cross in our place. That is fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Jesus took my place, suffered for my sins, and when he died, it's as if I died in him. So I'm now acceptable in heaven in the life that Christ lived. And therefore, says the apostle, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. I was very struck, one of my colleagues is, um, we have a Korean congregation. And it's very interesting, one evening we were going around the group of staff explaining how we'd all become Christians. And my Korean colleague said something different. He said it differently to the way the rest of us said. He said, now I realised that I died with Christ when I was 17. The rest of us didn't talk like that. We generally talked about, I realised that Jesus died for me. And I realized that what's going on here is that quite often in the West, we think, isn't that brilliant? Jesus died on the cross for us. Good bargain. I mean, what a fantastic bargain. I didn't do anything. Jesus died for me on the cross. I get salvation free. That is the best commercial deal you've ever come across. He died for me. Now I'm safe. I'm on my way to heaven. My Korean colleague, Joseph, thought differently. He said, yeah, but when he died, I died in him. That is, my old life of living for myself ended and I am now a new creation. I am now a saved man. My life is different now because I died with Christ. Let me try and uh, illustrate uh, for you. Uh, in November 1997, there was uh, a cargo vessel, the Green Lily, uh, which was foundering in storm conditions off the Shetland Islands. And uh, the Green Lily had a crew of ten, and uh, it looked like the ship was going to be lost with all the crew. Uh, there were storm conditions. Even the lifeboats couldn't get uh, to the stricken vessel. Uh, there was an SE rescue helicopter uh, flying out of Briscoe that was uh, at the scene. And it was plain that nothing could be done. And Bill Deacon, who was the winchman on the helicopter, realized that all the men, all the crew were going to be lost unless he did something. And so, do you know what he did? He attached himself to the line and he lowered himself down onto the deck of the vessel. So you can imagine driving winds, storm waves, this uh, broken vessel being washed with waves. And one by one, he attached each of the crew onto the bottom of the end of his line. And they were winched up to safety in the helicopter. But after the last of the crew members had been taken up to the helicopter, a massive wave swept across the boat and he was swept off to his death. And his body was washed up on shore uh, a few days later. And he was posthumously and rightly awarded the George Cross for his sacrifice. 
And I say that because that illustrates what Jesus did for us. But imagine if you were one of the crew in that helicopter and you're watching as Bill Deacon, his body, he's swept off the boat and you watch, he's just died in the act of saving you. And then a few weeks later, one of those crew members is sitting somewhere in Scotland recovering. There's a knock on the door. And it's someone collecting for air sea rescue. Uh, No thanks. Close the door. Not interested. You would not do that, would you? You would say, how much can I give you? How can I help you? What can I do in honor of the man that saved me? What can I contribute to SC Rescue? What can I do to be part of what that man died to accomplish for me? And that's what the Apostle's saying is. When you realize that Christ has died for you, his body was washed off in death when he suffered on that cross. He came from the comforts of heaven down into the storms of this life. He died on that cross in your place because he loves you so passionately so that you can go to heaven to be with God. What can you do for him? The apostle says, now we live for him who died for us. The fear of Christ is a motive. Judgment day is coming. The love of Christ is a motive overwhelmed by the love of God shown on the cross. Thirdly, the commission of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Here's a third. Here is the awareness of responsibility. Verse 19. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The commission of Christ. Uh, the Apostle is saying that God has entrusted to all of us, uh, primarily to the Apostle and his band here, but through the Apostle to all of us who now read his words, the message of reconciliation. You know what reconciliation is? When two parties at war become friends. You know where um, a man and woman have been separated, when they're reconciled, they come together again. When two nations are at war, when they're at peace, they're reconciled. Reconciliation. And the Apostle says this message of reconciliation, this message of how to be at peace with God, to be adopted as his children, loved by him, instead of his enemies who hate him, this message of reconciliation through Jesus has been entrusted to us. We know it. We know how it works through the death of Christ. He's committed that message to us. And like ambassadors who represent a government, our job is to pass it on to other people. You know, imagine the British ambassador in, in uh, I don't know, Libya. Message from the British government. The, Libyan, the ambassador in Libya is not at liberty to sit there on the message and think to himself, well, I'm a bit busy today. I don't think I'll bother passing on the, the message from my government today. Or actually, just reading it, it doesn't look very, uh, well, I wouldn't say that. I think I'll just strike out a few paraphrases. I think I'll change the message a bit to make it a bit more popular. An ambassador is not at liberty to either keep the message or change the message. The ambassador is to pass it on to those who need to hear it. Now says the apostle, if you're a Christian here today, you have been entrusted by the living God with a message of reconciliation with God. There are thousands, there are hundreds of thousands of people here in this city, let alone around the world, who do not know how to be at peace with God. You are not at liberty to keep that message to yourself. And you are not at liberty to change it. It no longer belongs to you. It belongs to those who have not heard it. Tell them. 
tell them or bring them so they can hear somebody else tell them. We are ambassadors. And says the apostle, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If there is anyone here this morning, if there is a student perhaps here just arrived uh, to study here in Edinburgh or come back from a holiday, and perhaps the summer's not been good for you spiritually, and you know that you are not close to God, that there is tension between you and your maker. If there is anyone here who's not been a part of this church family before, or who's pretending to be, but is not reconciled to God, then be reconciled to God today. Come back to him. Be at peace with him. It would be tragic, you see, to waste your life at war with God when you could be at peace with him. Uh, you may know the famous um, Japanese lieutenant in the Second World War, who's now, I think, it was Hiru Onada. Do you know about Hiru Onada? He was very famously uh, parachuted onto Lubang Island in the Philippines, I think in 1944, to engage in guerrilla warfare. The trouble was that he kept on fighting World War II until about 1971. Have you heard about this? Uh, what happened was, you see, he was in the jungle, surviving on jungle rations. Uh, the war had ended, but he didn't believe it had ended. And so he carried on fighting. People tried to shout uh, to him over loud hailers, the war's over! And he used to take pot shots at them with his rifle and run back into the jungle. The Americans flew planes over the island, dropped leaflets on him, but he dismissed it as propaganda. Load of rubbish. And then in 1971, he stumbled across some terrified students on a beach on the island who persuaded him that the war had been over since 1945. He was taken back to a ticker tape welcome in, in Tokyo. And everyone cheered that at last this lost soldier had returned. But actually, it's a very, very, very sad story. He spent so many years living in this jungle, fighting a war that could have been over ages ago. I want to say to anybody here this morning who has not yet come back to God, why on earth would you want to keep fighting God? The war can be over today. You can be at peace with God now in your heart. If you will stop fighting him and come back to God through what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. And if you have sinned terribly, God is saying, look, wherever you've come from, whatever you've done, with whoever you've been doing it for however long, if you will come back to him today, turn from your sin, you can be reconciled to God today. Would it not be a wonderful thing to be at peace with God and to leave this place forgiven, loved, and to know that you're at peace with your maker? That's a wonderful way to live. Why would you carry on wasting your life at war with the living God? And if you know anybody else who's in that condition, it is your responsibility to tell them. We, can, we may not keep it or change it. The message is for them the commission of Christ. So the fear of Christ, judgment is coming. The love of Christ, Christ has died for us. The commission of Christ, we have a message to tell people, lastly, the day of Christ. Chapter 6, verse 2. For he says in the Old Testament, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation.
This is a sense of the opportunity that we now have. We live in the day of Christ. We are motivated not only by the fear of Christ, the love of Christ, the commission of Christ, but the time in which we live. This is the day of salvation. If you haven't noticed, people are getting saved through Jesus Christ all the time and all over the world. Don't be fooled by the decline in church attendance in Western society. People are becoming Christians in Britain all the time. People are becoming Christians in their millions around the world. Just look at what's happening in Asia and Africa and South America. People are getting saved all the time everywhere because this is the day of salvation in which we live. And the apostle is saying, what a brilliant time to be alive because your friends and your neighbours can be saved. It is not too late. It is still the day of salvation. So he says, seize the day. Uh, You know that uh, award-winning film with um, starring Robin Williams called Dead Poet Society, where there's that uh, very colourful teacher played by Robin Williams who's going to this incredibly stuffy, strict school. And uh, he teaches the boys this uh, Latin phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. In other words, suck the juice out of life. Why live a boring life? Why live a dull life? Make the most of the opportunities that God has given you. And that's what the apostle is saying to, to his readers then and now. Why would you want to live a safe, comfortable, boring, dull life? Just wait for heaven to arrive. Why would you want to arrive in heaven not even out of breath? No scars to show, no stories to tell. Just a boring, dull Christian life. Why would you want to do that, he says. This is the day of salvation. This is the day when people are getting saved. Be part of it. You see, some people think, you say, oh yeah, but we Christians, we're, we're such a minority. Oh, woe is us. Whoa! Uh, there's a lovely little book written by Rob Green called Imagine, in which says most Christians th- see themselves like this graph, and he, and he draws an L like a graph, and all the Christians are like little dots in the corner. We're all trapped in the corner, tiny minority, sheltering for protection from the wicked world out there. He says that's not the way it is at all, and he draws a second graph, and there are dots all over the graph. He says God's got His people everywhere. I mean, here in Edinburgh, I'm hearing, oh, whoa, so few people are Christians. God's got his people everywhere in Edinburgh, in every hospital, in every street, in every business, in every pub, everywhere you go, there are Christians. It's a marketing man's dream to have Christians, to have the people of God scattered throughout this city the way you lot are. What a fantastic opportunity. You've got people everywhere. We're hearing yesterday... Something of the statistics, if Edinburgh has got 490,000 people, is that, is that roughly right? And the people coming to church are 24,000. You have to think to yourself, how fantastic is that? There is so much opportunity for evangelism. There's so many people don't know Jesus. I mean, why would you want to turn up to work into an office where he's a Christian, she's a Christian, he's a Christian, she's a Christian? What's the point of being there? Much better to arrive at work and the guy in the other, the other terminal, oh yeah, she's a Muslim. He's a Hindu, she's an atheist, she's an atheist, and he's a Satanist. That's the best office in the world to be in. Because everybody, there's so many people. What about the communities of this city? How many suburbs are not reached with the gospel? Loads of them. Brilliant. You can't get it wrong. You can plant anywhere and it can be useful. Because so few, I mean, why would you want to be in a place full of Christians? May as well go to heaven. That's That's not what life is about. Story is told of the West African shoe salesman. I'm nearly finished. The West African shoe salesman sent to West Africa to sell shoes, and after six months, sends down the sends back this report 
and it's got a situation dreadful. Nobody wears shoes out here. Bring me home immediately. So they bring him home. Send out another salesman. Late next six months, another report goes home. Situation absolutely fantastic. Nobody wears shoes out here. Sell all the shoes you've got. Send all the shoes you've got. What a great time to be a Christian in Edinburgh. Nobody wears any shoes. So few people are Christians here. Almost, you can't get it wrong. Just talk to the office. Someone's not going to be a Christian. Invite them all to come to your, your uh, supper party to hear, hear the minister talk about Jesus. Most of them are not Christians. Plant anywhere and you'll be doing something helpful. Because there are so few Christian churches in Edinburgh. What a time to be alive. To proclaim the gospel and to plant churches. Because this is the day when people are getting saved all the time. If you want to live a boring life, that's up to you. I reckon most of us here are Christians want to make more of a difference than that. People are getting saved all the time. Be part of it. Four motivations to mission. Four reasons why it's not just the staff, but everyone at this church should proclaim the gospel to your friends, your colleagues, or bring them to somebody who will. And be part of planting churches. I don't know where, I don't know how, just get on and do it. For four reasons. The fear of Christ. You'll be examined and others are going to hell. We're in a hurry. Secondly, the love of Christ. God loves the people of this city passionately. And he loves you and me too. Overwhelmed by that love. Don't you want others to discover that love for themselves? Thirdly, the commission of Christ. He's entrusted us with a message. We must not keep it or change it. We must pass it on to those who don't yet know. And lastly, the day of Christ. What a day to be alive in Edinburgh. What an opportunity is before this church. Proclaim the gospel and plant churches. And let's all arrive in a heap in heaven and talk about what God has done. Let's bow our heads and pray together.